coming to the end of the chapter. I might say this again, but I just I'll say it from the outset because this is important. We begin the third section in Exodus this morning, the way that I've partitioned it out, not original with me. We've we've gone through the uh, the suffering, the affliction, and we finished last week with liberation and um, taking up the next section as itineration. Israel's on the move. It's the, it's an itineration. The Lord's working in them, and we're going to see that starts immediately. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now they came to Marah, and they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the water were made sweet. Then he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them, and he said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord. Who heals you? Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Thus far the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we continue through this ancient text, uh, inspired by the same Spirit who we look to and depend upon, this Spirit who dwells within us, who inspired Moses, a man of like nature with us, and yet called out by you to lead your people in extraordinary times. Uh, and a, a man who faced extraordinary leadership challenges. And Lord, we see how even thus far you have worked in him and brought him along, mature in him, and we will see more of that. Lord, we now under your word recognize that though we may not be in extraordinary times, these are the days in which we live, and we still need your strength from above. We need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, our understanding, to work in our hearts that your word would not just be uh, sounds upon our ears, but that you would give us an understanding heart, spiritual eyes to see, and above all, that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would be ready, willing, and able to take up that which you would teach us. Lord, sustain even the minister that you set before. Sustain us, Lord, and in the worship, and may Christ be magnified as we see him even in this old text, working amongst his people. We pray, Lord, that in all these things, 
Christ would have the supremacy. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Surely by now you know that I'm, uh, well, I'll be be so bold as to say, rather fond of Dr. Harry Reeder. He had uh, fair influence on me, though we met each other only infrequently and, and developed a friendship that was usually marked by uh, seeing each other at General Assembly, and yet uh, he's left a mark on me. And uh, there's several of the things that he said that just resonate. You've heard some of them from me. But one of the things this morning I want to begin with, Dr. Harry Reeder was known for saying that circumstances do not make your character. Circumstances do not make your character. They reveal it. And they expose where growth is needed. On Friday morning, we were flying to Norfolk, Virginia through Baltimore to attend my mother's memorial service that afternoon. And our flight that we were on was supposed to continue on. We're supposed to stay on board the plane and just pick up some fresh people. And for some reason unknown to us, we had to change planes. We were comfortably seated. And I anticipated that we would be able to board the, the next plane first, having have to been displaced. But that's not what happened. Uh, it was a lot of disruption. And the airline, for I don't know what reasons, made a real mess of things. And so we ended up standing by watching everybody else board, Southwest boards, and you just you board and you get the seat, you get the seat. And um, I had a good seat. I had one of those seats with a lot of leg room, and I appreciated it. Um, for a while, they couldn't figure out how they were going to get us to board the plane because they looked at the manifest and it said we were already on board. It was quite a kerfuffle. Delays, confusion. And being a mere man, I murmured. And I grumbled. And I complained. Um, I was more vocal than should have been, I'm ashamed. It was sinful. I wasn't even supposed to be in the airport building. I was supposed to be on my seat waiting to go on. And my dear friend and mentor, the late Dr. Harry Reeder, was talking about exactly those kind of circumstances. And it revealed to me something about my character. They revealed that there's still growth needed in my life. The circumstances on Friday morning revealed that I needed to grow in trusting the Lord, to be patient, trusting His handling the circumstances. Here's the sad truth. On the flight to Baltimore, I had been reading and preparing to preach this very text to you. And the truths were front and center in my mind, and I was behaving like the Israelites in the wilderness, rather than a godly man. I'm ashamed of my attitude, my words, on that most recent morning. But here's the encouraging thing. God appoints circumstances in each one of our lives because we're still being sanctified. It's the circumstances, particularly the difficult ones, that help us to see our need for Christ 
And hopefully we're pointed to Christ knowing that in him is the fullness of all that we need. Not that we should despair, we should be ashamed, we should confess our sins, you know, I've done those things, but to see Christ and uh, to have a greater desire to learn to be more Christ-like, uh, to call upon him, to lean upon him, to look for the work of the word by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I needed to learn Friday morning, like Moses in this text, to cry to the Lord right up front, right as things started getting difficult. And indeed, I hope that the Lord will accomplish that in me. We have a theme this morning. I try to draw a theme out for us. And what we see here is that God will sanctify his people who he has redeemed. We're looking at a group of people that have just been redeemed. And to be honest, they're very unsanctified. They're very unholy. Uh, they're, we might put it this way today, they're, they're like brand new babes in Christ. Indeed, as the evidence, as I keep reminding you, will show that many of them don't even believe. Much of their behavior is because they, they don't have new hearts. But as a collective group, we see that there's a tremendous need for growth in Israel, God's covenant people. Children, I, I want to define a couple of words before we go on because we're going to use them throughout the text. And the words that I don't think are unfamiliar to you, you, you take tests, whether you're in a Christian school or a public school or homeschool, you take tests. Well, a test, I want you to think of it this way, is uh, it's a way to discover what someone is like, what they know, or what they will do. What's a test do for us? That's one thing. And the other word we're going to use is trial, and they're closely related. Trials are filled with tests. A trial is uh, an action or a, a process of trying or putting to proof Think of the, the metallurgist, that's a mouthful, who will prove the purity of silver or gold in a, by placing it in a furnace. Children, I think you can understand this. I suppose that most of you understand that gold is heavy. So imagine somebody comes to you and they say, I want to sell you this bar of gold. And you hold it and it feels heavy, but is it gold? You, you want to test that gold. You want to put it through a trial because gold costs a lot of money and you'd be wise to test that bar to ensure that it is gold. So what might be wise to do is put it in a steel crucible, apply a great deal of heat to it and then it will melt. And you know what? If it's just a piece of lead that's been painted with, painted with gold paint, you're going to see that real quick, that it's just a bar of lead. But if indeed it's gold, as it melts, you'll see through and through that it is gold. It's been tested and tried. And that's very much the way it is in our life. Testing and trials demonstrate what we really are. In our text this morning, we see God test his people, or we could put it another way. He places them in a situation of a trial. They're free. They've been set free from Egypt. They're no longer slaves. What, what has just taken place? They've been brought 
across the body of water that seemed to be a barrier when Israel, uh, Egypt's armies were right behind them, when it seems like there was no way of escape, and yet the Lord has brought them through that. In his final act of delivering them, he has mightily delivered them, and he just destroyed their foes. And, and you remember what's just happened earlier in this chapter. They've sung and they've celebrated before the Lord. They've rejoiced with exceeding great joy for what God has accomplished them. Some of you are Christians it's long enough that you know that it's after those moments of great triumphs we're the most vulnerable. Um, oftentimes the test will follow some great triumph and we in turn discover through the trial there's more work to be done in us. And that's what we see here and there. God set them free. And yet he's going to expose to them, though they're free, they're no longer slaves, they need to learn to trust the Lord. They need to grow. They need to learn to cry out to him, not to murmur and grumble against Moses, their leader. Israel has just come out of Egypt, and they act like the Egyptians. There's still, we could say it this way, there's still a lot of, sin in them that needs to be worked down. So we use four main headings. Free at last, in their first test. What the Lord's first test exposed in Israel. And Moses appeals to the Lord. And finally, the Lord's ordinance. And we'll conclude. So begin with the free at last. Uh, in their first test, uh, the text opens 22 and 23. Last week, uh, we completed that section of the book of Exodus, the liberation. They're set free. Not only are they, are they out of Egypt, they're free from the bonds of slavery. But those who had gone out to seize them and bring them back to slavery, they lie dead. In the Reed Sea, God has drowned them. They're defeated. And they're celebrating. But where they're at is not a place to live. They're not in their new home. They have not reached their destination. God has promised to give them a land, even as he promised to Abraham, their forefather, a place flowing with milk and honey. But that's not where they're at. And Moses tells us, and he writes in verse 22, that he led them onward away from that place, away from the place of celebration. They, there's no provisions there. There's no housing there. There's, there's not food there. There's, they've got to go on. Matthew Henry notes that we may have... Um, Matthew notes that what Moses did leading them on may have been done with some difficulty. You've been to a party. It's a good party. You're celebrating. Um, it's sometimes hard to leave, right? And even the, the language that's used here uh, as they're celebrating, it speaks of that Moses had to compel them to go. That the land before them is, it's a wilderness land. He's going to lead them into the wilderness of Shur. And this departure is going to begin a long, long journey, made longer by them because of the sin in their heart. Um, and so this departure from the shores of the Reed Sea meant that they needed to walk by faith and not by sight. 
you know, we get out on the highway and there's a paved road. Uh, there's center line markers, there's signs to point us on their way, and today we got our GPS. It's so easy to travel today, isn't it? You know, sometimes those GPSs will get us a little crosswise, but they do pretty good. But they don't have any of that. They don't have any maps. They don't even know what way the Lord's taking them. And they must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. That's a large part of what it is to grow up in the Lord. My friends, that's what we are called to do, to walk by faith, not by sight. That is to say, in the midst of circumstances, don't let the circumstances govern how we're going to behave and uh, what our conduct's going to be. We, we walk according to the word of the Lord. We walk by faith, trusting the Lord. And so they've got to leave. And like brand new Christians, they, they leave with some excitement. Uh, and yet the steps that follow, they find that there's adversity. In reality, I don't know that they understand this. I don't know that it's clear to them. Remember, they've been slaves for 400 years. They, just, they don't have any travel experience. They don't have any maps. But they're actually going south. And the land of promise is north as they make their way down through the wilderness of Shur. And Moses it leads them for three days. Now, this place they're in, um, there's places that are called out in here that we don't have clarity. We can't pull out some ancient maps and say, well, they're right here. What we do is we use modern Places and we get some sense of where they're at, but this wilderness is sure. It's a little bit more clear. It's, it's this is the frontier land of Egypt. You've got the the Red Sea. They've been at a large lake, which I believe is the Reed Sea. They've crossed. They're making their way south. This is something of a highway because just to the east there's there's a band of mountains, and so between the Red Sea and the band of mountains, there's just a, kind of a natural place to travel, and people would use that as a path for going north and south to Canaan and to do their travel. And they're on this area, they're traveling south, and Moses is leading them down this border region, the frontier of Egypt. Sure, that's used in the text, means wall. And, and it's natural to call it that. The mountains, in some sense, made like a wall. It's like a, a mountain range, and it served, as I said, as a frontier. We can read of this very same place in, in Genesis 20. Abraham was here in his travels. You hear about that back in chapter 20 as the chapter opens. He, for whatever reason, traveled in the region. It's, it's a barren land. It's unpopulated. The Egyptians had uh, little outposts, like we might say little mini fortresses or something, that they used to guard their frontier, but... You know, whatever provisions they had had to be hauled in. This is this is a wilderness. Again, as I was referring to earlier, the, the the word here, we're told that Moses brought Israel out from the Red Sea. It's really the sense that he caused them. He had to compel them to leave. And so they're on their way. This route, this location, presents Israel then with their first test as a free 
redeemed people. Some of us have been Christians for some time, and we may be able to remember and say, you know, when I was first converted, yeah, I thought everything was going to be great. And, and there, I went through tests, but uh, I can't remember uh, the first test you know, as a new believer. Maybe some of you can. Well, for them, this is their first test as a redeemed people. And for three days, they're traveling in a wilderness area. Uh, they're, they're carrying the unleavened bread that they had uh, brought with them. That would not have been too difficult, but transporting enough water for 600,000 fighting men plus spouses and children and, and, and a host of livestock, all these animals, the quantity of water that they would have needed to sustain them would have been impossible for them to carry. Some of you might know that uh, you talk about that the military marches on its belly. Um, even more important than the food is water. We, we, we don't last very long without water. And here they are, three days. They're really kind of getting at the limits of what it is to go without water. Three days. And so this is a real trial. Sustaining life, it, it, this, it, this is, it's, it, it is a crisis. It, it, this is critical. But this was God's plan for them. He has brought about this test. Verse 23 opens with something of a promise. So they're traveling down through the wilderness ashore. They go three days in the wilderness and find no water. Now when they came to Mara, this is a body of water. You can imagine, you know, one of the challenges, some of you have read about deserts, you know, and you start getting delirious because you're, you're, you're thirsty and you, you see a mirage and you think you see a body of water and you get there and it's, it's, it's nothing. But in this case, there, there actually was a body of water. As you can imagine, you know, this, you know, millions of people and, and the announcement from the folks at the front said, there's water, and it would travel quickly back through the camp. The excitement, everybody's dry, they're thirsty, there's water. And then they get there, and the very first people get there, what does it say? And they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. Does that word remind you of another story? The book of Ruth, and Ruth, with when uh, Naomi comes back from her experience in Moab, she says, "No longer call me Naomi, which means gentle." She says, "Call me Mara, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me." It's a word that's familiar to us, and so that they arrive and, and they discover the water is it's not good. Some go to drink it; it's 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 bitter. It's it's probably brackish. Because of the proximity of the Red Sea and salt water, and it would have been untenable. And there's other suggestions that uh, we think we know where this place is at today, not we personally, but geologists and those guys, because there's a body of water there, and because of minerals that are in the soil and everything, it's, it's just it's water that's not safe to drink. Not only does it taste good, it, it's not safe to drink, and that's what Mara is. It's a location that's about 47 miles from the Gulf of Suez, several miles inland. Today it's known as Ain Hawara. I'm not from the Middle East. Probably made a mess of that. But that's where we're pretty sure that it was at. But this was bad water. Like I said, maybe even poisonous. Certainly drinking brackish water will make you ill. 
So the water was so bad it could not be drunk. This is the first great test for Israel that's come upon them. And as we read in the text, is written in such a way that we want to press on. You know, we get to this point. They, they, they've come to the water. You, you, you want to just stop and say, okay, end of sermon. We'll, we'll pick this up next week. No, we want to know what happens, right? You feel like, well, what, what's, what's going to happen? We, we need to move forward. What's going to happen? The people have come to this place. It's called bitter. The waters are bitter. And the people respond with bitterness. Look at verse 24. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, in some sense, that's very understandable, isn't it? They've been three days in the wilderness of Sir. They've run out of the water. Uh, they need to drink. It's a, it's, a, it's a necessary thing. But what do they do? They complain. The word is a stronger word. They, they murmur against Moses. The word actually has the context of rebellion. Now, Moses is their leader by God's appointment. Uh, they've followed him thus far. Remember, uh, months ago, probably um, a year and some ago, he's come from the wilderness himself, herding sheep. He's come and said, God has appointed me to lead you out of this land. And, and they followed him. And uh, when things got hard, when uh, Pharaoh took away the straw, they murmured against Moses, didn't they? But nonetheless, Moses is their leader, and he's brought him thus far. And so they're going to lay all the blame on Moses. This, this is all your fault. And they complain against Moses. Before we go on and see what happens next, let's just make some applications. I'm confident we can all relate to this text. Sometimes we read the Old Testament passages about the Old Testament saints in, in our pride. We want to shake our heads and say, what is wrong with you people? But if we understand anything about ourselves, we would say, understand I get it I'm, I'm like them and that's that should be our response right here uh, we all have those events where all is going along and then suddenly things get hard the the unexpected happens illness a missed flight being brought off an airplane when you didn't want to a, a pay cut a loss of a job a, a failing grade a bad test results from the doctor, we encounter things in life that could lead us to bitterness. Notice I said could lead us to bitterness. As we grow in the Lord, that should not lead us to bitterness, but there are times when it happens. But we have to remember that it's all part of God's plan and purpose. God orders the circumstances not because he's cruel, but because he's kind, because he's loving, because he has redeemed us for a purpose to conform us to the image of his son. Christ didn't just shed his blood so we would stay out of hell and gain heaven. Christ shed his blood so that our sins would be washed away and forgiven and that even as we continue to sin, we would grow in Christ and sin less and less and become more and more conformed to the image of the Son of the living God. Tests and trials in life are, are, are hard. 
But if we didn't have them, we wouldn't discover things about ourselves that need to be revealed so that we will turn to the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord and apply to the Lord Jesus Christ and the wisdom of God in his word that we would grow up. Circumstances show us our hearts. These, I'm going to call them these Hebrews, were they were babies in their new life of freedom. No doubt they thought just being free from slavery would, would be great. We're no longer slaves. Everything's wonderful. Everything's going to be just peachy from here on out. But the circumstances showed them, no, there, there was a lot of Egypt in them. They didn't understand that. We see this today, brand new baby Christians make mistakes. I, I am discipling a number of people right now, and over the years I've discipled new believers in Christ. And, you know, there's a common mistake that's found. I think, I, I, I'm saved, I'm free from hell, I'm heaven bound. And if they're not properly discipled after their conversion, they can become disgruntled and discouraged. Because part of discipleship, remember Jesus says, teach them whatsoever things I've commanded you. Part of that is to come to understand, now you need to grow. Now you need to learn to lean upon the Lord. Well, secondly, what does the Lord's first test expose? In verse 24, we're told the people complain. What shall we drink? This is a repeat, actually. Turn back to Exodus 5. I I alluded to this earlier. Exodus 5 and verse 19. uh, uh, Moses has gone to Pharaoh. And things have suddenly got harder. No straw. You've got to make just as many bricks. Verse 19. The officers, that is the foreman of the children of Israel, saw that they were in trouble after it was said, You shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. And then they came out from Pharaoh, and they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. They haven't changed really much since that occasion. But to be sure, this very hard providence at Mara was of the Lord. The Lord God has not failed. Remember, Lord, all calves, means the covenant faithful God or the covenant faithful Lord. He's not failed. He's ordained this test. He's brought this trial on them, just as he does in our lives every single day. Every day we are faced with tests and trials. Here the people grumbled. Have any of you ever done that before? If there's anybody here who can sincerely say, no, I've never grumbled or murmured, i I'd like to talk to you after the conversation, after the, the, the sermon. I can safely say we've all grumbled many times, and we are probably well rehearsed in this practice. Israel's going to do it again. I don't know if anybody wants to put this down, but we're going to see him do it again in Exodus 16, 2, and 7, and 8. Again, in chapter 17, verse 3, if you go on into Numbers, you're going to find them doing the same thing in Numbers 14, 2, 
Again in verse 27, in verse 29, in verse 36. That's quite a rapid succession. And then later in chapter 16, verse 11, and later in verse 41. And we're going to see him do it again in chapter 17, verse 5. John McKay, a faithful commentator, says, Grumbling arises from attitude of dissatisfaction with one's lot in inability in any no I should say in an inability to do anything about it. That's what happened on Friday. I had no ability to do anything about the circumstances. And it was dissatisfaction whereas the Lord has called us to rest in the Lord. This is coupled then with an inner discontent that is expressed by the hostility. Notice how I'm putting that. The hostility of complaining. Who are we being hostile against? God. We sing, whate'er my God ordains is right. And that is true. But it's in the circumstances we have this hostility of complaining and we discover how we need to grow in Christ. Uh, this exposes the ingratitude in us for all that has been done for us. When we consider what the Lord has done for us thus far and even demonstrated his faithfulness to us thus far, as we grow, we should be learning to say, well, the Lord's going to take care of this. Wait on the Lord. It reveals our forgetfulness. Remember, we in a couple sermons ago, we were reminded that we need to keep being reminded and reminded. The, the children of Israel just days ago were slaves. And now they're free, and they feel so free that, that they can complain. Listen, the lack of water was truly a, a mundane thing. That is ordinary. The lack of things in life is mundane. It's ordinary. This is something that's going to occur in our lives again and again. This was not really an extraordinary event, as so many of the events in our lives are. They're just mundane. The very real problem is the lack of our spiritual awareness. They were failing to give the Lord his due place in their lives. We can reduce this down to say they were walking by sight and not by faith. They weren't walking, looking to the Lord. They took their eyes off the Lord and they looked at the water, the water that they tasted, and to them that's all there was. Their whole world revolved around their thirst and they forgot that the Lord and his faithfulness and how he provided for them and they were only looking by sight at their circumstances. How often have we done that? The Lord is always able to do exceedingly more and abundantly than we think. The Lord has a tremendous power to save. Didn't Israel just see that? Ten plagues? And they're worried about water. Can you relate? we can remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 and we referred to these before and, and we probably will again 1 Corinthians 10 11 he says now these things happen to them 
God's talking about this right before us. These things happen to them as examples for us. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. And this warning comes right after. He says, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. The stakes are higher than we want to think of them. Well, there was one in the midst of this host of Israel who has been growing. We met him in the wilderness at a burning bush. But he said, Lord, send somebody else. I can't even talk well. I'm not your guy. And yet, he was God's guy. Not because of Moses' greatness, but because of the great work God had been doing in Moses. And that brings us to our third point. Moses appeals to the Lord in the midst of all this. A million people complaining. They're thirsty. Moses is thirsty. And what does Moses do? Look at verse 25. So he, that's Moses, cried out to the Lord. That's the right response. My brothers and sisters, that's how we should live our lives. When the circumstances become difficult and start revealing things in us that perhaps we didn't know about ourselves, our response, our our default response, what we should learn to do as we grow and mature, and indeed that's why we keep facing difficult things, so we will grow and mature, our response must be to call upon the Lord, or as Moses says here, cry out to the Lord, Lord, help. Lord, save. Lord, I'm confused. Lord, this this situation, it's overwhelming, but you are faithful. Moses had understood the Lord was faithful, and he makes his appeal to God. He cries out to the Lord. It's what the people should have done, and it did what what they must learn to do. Moses cried out, and the Lord answers swiftly. We're told in the text, the Lord showed Moses a tree. The, the word show literally means revealed to Moses. He didn't just say, oh, look, there's a tree. The, the word, the way it's used here is that he revealed to Moses that this tree, he was supposed to take and cast it into the waters. He didn't know what the outcome would be. He, he was walking by faith. The Lord revealed the tree to him that he was supposed to throw it in the waters. He did so, not knowing what the outcome would be. It, it seems kind of an odd thing to do, doesn't it? I take up this tree and throw it into the water. Lord, I'm walking by faith. And he did. And you know what happened? Immediately, the waters were transformed. The waters became wholesome. It's funny. Um, I'm, I read faithful scholars and commentators, but they refer to unfaithful scholars. And uh, they make reference to these unfaithful scholars. That they, they spend all this time trying to look at scientific research to try and imagine what kind of wood could possibly have been in that place that when it went into the water that had the ability to transform these bitter waters into wholesome waters. What's the simple fact? God acted supernaturally. That's the simple fact. Moses obeyed. That's the point. The Lord God 
who has acted for Israel again and again. This is, this is the record of the book of Exodus. God is faithful. God acts supernaturally. God is able to deliver his people. His greatest act is displayed at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we keep going back to this because it's the foundation of our faith. It's what we're to be rooted and grounded in. When it seemed all was lost, God was acting, bringing about his perfect plan that he announced all the way back in the garden. Moses acted by faith, and the Lord healed the waters. The tree's main function was similar to the elements of the Lord's Supper. These elements, the, the bread and the wine, they're, they're designs for us to point us back to the completed work of Christ. And this tree, though it had no effectiveness in itself, was a sign to point the people to God to God. For God is the one who put the tree there, gave Moses the knowledge, revealed to him that he should throw it in. It's a sign that points to the power of God to save. The cross, that rugged wooden structure, which some people sentimentally sing about, the old rugged cross, I won't sing it. There's no effectiveness in the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus died. That tree had no power in it. As a matter of fact, the crucifixion had no power in it. The Romans crucified many. Paul yet says, I preach the power of Christ in him crucified. You might say that if Israel properly understood this text, God provided through the tree. We celebrate that the tree that the Lord supplied to clarify the waters, but it was, it was the Lord that did it. The power of God in our salvation is not a tree. It's not a crucifixion. It's the uniqueness of the one who hung upon that tree. And what was happening in that moment when he took our sins on himself and received from the hand of his father the fullness of the wrath of God, the curse for our sins. That's what makes it so remarkable. That's the, the point of the elements in the Lord's Supper, that we would remember these things. Do this in remembrance of me. Salvation was in the crucified one, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The bitterness thinking about bitter waters. The bitterness of sin exceeds bitter waters infinitely. And yet the bitterness of sin, death, the grave, God's wrath was removed because God was satisfied with the sacrifice of his only begotten son whom he sent into the world to save sinners. Moses acted in faith the waters were healed just as Elisha, some of you may remember this story, he took salt and cast it into bitter waters, waters that were death. That's what the prophets, the school of prophets, they said, Master, these, these waters are death. And he cast salt into the waters and, and they were healed. And then another occasion, they were hungry and they, they took gourds and made a stew and it was, it was poisonous. And death is in the stew in Elisha by God's direction, cast a flower into it, and it became wholesome, and the hungry people were fed. You see, this isn't unique. God, God is constantly providing for his people. People of God today, right now, here in the 21st century, God has not changed. 
when it seems impossible. God has not changed. He is faithful. We need to look to him, rest in him, wait on him. It's sort of just like uh, the situation where Jesus spit in dust and he made a clay. We heard this in John. And then he smeared it on the eyes of a man who had been born blind. blind and, and then he told him to go wash in the pool and he's, his sight was given to him, not restored. He'd never seen. But it was spittle in clay, a mud into a clay. God uses means to strengthen our weak faith. In Mara, it was a tree. Brothers and sisters, let me apply it. Do not neglect the ordinary means of grace. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together on the Lord's day. Do not forsake the keeping of the Lord's day. Do not forsake to use the whole day. We have a whole week filled with trials. Let us take this one whole day that God had given to us as a day of rest and worship and apply ourselves to the means of grace. We need far more than what we get here. We need to go home and be in the Word and discuss the sermon and read passages with our children. We need instruction. We're in a wilderness filled with bitter waters, and we need to learn that the Lord is faithful and able to do far more than we think. When hardships break upon us, we will begin well if we have applied ourselves well week by week in the use of what God has provided. We will cry out, Lord, we know your work in these circumstances. Lord, help us. Lord, provide for us. Lord, keep our eyes fixed upon Christ in this trial, in this circumstance. This is the real point of the episode at Mara. God is beginning to teach his people to listen to his statutes. And that brings us to our our last point, the Lord's ordinances. It says, we're told then, the Lord made his statue an ordinance. Uh, There's not really a reason to make a distinction between the two words at this point. God is putting before them a command. It says, or he put, he made, he put, the Hebrews begin uh, the Hebrew here begins with the word sham, sham, this sound of sh, sa, with an S. It's interesting, with these two words that this ordinance begins in the two verses that follow, this sh sound is used 17 times in two verses. We're just reminded in, in our law homily about, I'm sorry, in our New Testament homily about the reoccurrence of things. Uh, for the Hebrews, they would not miss this. This sound kept taking them back to how it all began. The Lord is giving them an ordinance. God draw, does this to draw the attention to the Hebrew reader to fix his mind on what's being said. In a sense, it's like a, a memory tool. There's a memory hook, that, uh, like something that rhymes. It helps us to remember it. That's why singing is such a useful way to learn doctrine or Here he's giving them this sound. He's fixing their attention. Verse 25, the last part says he tested them there. The verb that is used here is nishah or shah, the shah sound. And God will use this again in this context in his relationship with his people 
What we see right here, we're going to see it again. Chapter 16, verse 4. Chapter 17, verse 2. Chapter 20, verse 20. He's going to keep repeating what we see right here. Why? Because just like us, they forget. And they needed to be reminded. He's given them a test, statute, ordinance. Uh, he's given them a rule, we could say. Uh, the use of these multiple words to begin with is just to help them to remember the rule. And what is the Lord doing? In verse 26, we see the Lord makes a pledge to his people. But notice it's conditional. What's the very first word there? Some of you children are old enough to read. If you look at verse 26 and the very thing, and he, that is God, said if, and if you hear it, if, you're waiting for the then, if then, it's conditional. If what? If what? If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, keep, uh, give ear to his commandments and keep all his distance. And then here's the then. I will put none of the diseases on you that I brought on Egypt, for I am the Lord who heals you. He's just healed waters. And he gives them this clear instruction. If you obey, if you do what is right in my sight, then I will not visit the diseases of Egypt upon you. Now, it's very important that we, we stop and make a distinction here. We do this every time we look at the preface to the Ten Commandments. Week by week, we go through the Ten Commandments. And every now and then, uh, we bring in the preface. And we are reminded the Ten Commandments were given in the context to a people already redeemed. God didn't give the Ten Commandments to them to say, if you will keep these things, then I will save you. And that's the same thing here. These people have been redeemed. They have been brought out of slavery. They've been brought out and given their liberty. So what follows this promise of God isn't, if you'll do this, then I'll save you. No, he says, if you do this, I won't visit the diseases of Egypt upon you. If you want to see that more thoroughly, if I remember correctly, Deuteronomy 28 is a big if then. Keep my commandments, blessings, 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 blessings. If you fail to keep my commandments and you disobey me, curses, 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 curses. That's what we have here before us. It's almost like that chapter given to that future generation summed up in just these few short words. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God. And do what is right in his sight, and keep, give ear to his commandments, and keep his statutes. I will put none of the diseases upon you which I brought upon the Egyptians. God is saying to them, I'm your healer. Now, when he says diseases, the diseases upon Egypt, the, the, don't be confused by this. Uh, um, he's talking about the heavy afflictions, the, the mighty signs and wonders that we've already done. He's not talking about shingles or gout or cancer or warts or any other disease you may, may think about. Remember the first plague in Egypt? Water was turned into blood. Water, which is essential for life, was suddenly blood. Life giving water was taken away. What have they just experienced? They have been faced with that, that first plague. They've come to a situation in their travels where there's no water. 
The Lord is the giver of life and water. Here they are in the wilderness ashore, and it's useless water, just as usually, says when the, the Nile turned to blood. And yet God has intervened, and suddenly the bitter water was healed. Suddenly. The Lord is their healer. The Lord is able to provide for them. They did not have to wait for days. God has not promised in this text to be their personal physician to heal every Hebrew of every disease, as so many in the name it and claim it cultish part of the church want to make today. That's not what this promise is about. Hearken to the voice of the Lord. You know what that really means? Walk by faith. Abraham believed God. He heard his voice. And it was accounted unto him as righteousness. That's the grounds of our justification. We believe God. Ultimately, it is to believe God, the Son, who he is, what he said he'd do, his promises. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall be saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why should we call upon the name of the Lord? Because we've heard it preached that he's the Savior of sinners. This is is a promise of faith. And faith results in obedience. That's what God's saying. If you want to avoid the judgments that you saw me do recently in Egypt, obey me. You see the marvelous promise at the end of verse 26? For I am the Lord, that is the covenant faithful one, who heals you. And they've just seen him heal waters. They have every reason to believe him. Sisters and brothers, our greatest need is not for healing from physical maladies. Our greatest need is for healing from spiritual problems, the things that get revealed in the circumstances of life. Later, Solomon's going to finish the completion of the temple. And in his prayer, he seems to have this promise right here in mind. Being the wisest man alive and knowing even his own heart, Solomon prays that the Lord will hear his people even when they are in distant lands because they have turned away from keeping his commandments and he has driven them away to chasten them, to discipline them. He said, Lord, if they remember their wicked ways and they turn to this place and pray, that you would heal their land. The promise right here. You can read that in 2 Chronicles 7.14. So almost immediately, God leads his people on from there. Remember, they're learning to be guided by the pillar cloud by day and fire by night. And, and it rises and it moves on to Elam. And God proves his promise. It's so remarkable. There, there are bitter waters that have been made drinkable and it, that's remarkable enough. It, it was a sufficient provision. But God goes above and beyond. Look at verse 27. He has them move. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. And so they camped by the waters. 12 springs of waters for the 12 tribes of Israel and 70 palm trees for the 70 elders of Israel to sit under and judge the people as they would meet with them. What a contrast. And that's not even a miracle. Elam is a providential provision. 
It was already there. Uh, we can actually locate with pretty high confidence where that place is today. So here's our conclusion. Dear Christian, did you see the lesson? Our lives parallel, parallel the Hebrews. We, we move from places of great joy, great triumph, and then suddenly find ourselves in great trials. And that's when we're most vulnerable. And, and we go quickly, we go so quickly. It's a grieve our hearts. It, it grieves my heart. You know, I've been honest with you about my own life, not, uh, not to celebrate sin. I'm not that kind of preacher. But the lesson is too stark. We can go from great celebrations to great grumblings like in a fraction of a section. Just something go wrong, some little thing. And the next thing you know, we're struggling with unbelief. What caused Israel's rapid decline to go from rejoicing to murmuring? It's the same as ours. They walked by sight and not by faith. Because so quickly do that. Let us not be quick to judge Israel for what they did. Mara, at Mara, because we have our own Maras, and we fail so often. The answer, then, is to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ and never fail to remember the cross and what he accomplished there. Our salvation is secure. He has saved us. And there's nothing that man can do to us. There's nothing that can happen in this world that can take away what Christ has accomplished at the cross. Let us have the confidence of Daniel when thrown into the lion's den, of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azrael when thrown into the furnace. Whatever our trials, let us walk by faith and have confidence. God will take care of us since he did not withhold his only begotten son to meet our greatest need. We can have full assurance every day that he will meet the needs of that day. Whether they're physical or spiritual, God is the covenant faithful Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do praise you and thank you for these lessons that we can look at a band of people murmuring, grumbling, and complaining with a real need, and that we can draw these lessons for our own lives. Lord, uh, these things indeed were written for our instruction. Lord, help us to take them by into heart. Lord, we pray particularly that we would mature as your people to not be complainers, but that when the circumstances are hard, that we would be those who cry out as Moses did to the Lord because you have proved yourself over and over again. You are faithful to your covenant promises, and you will not fail us. We thank you for this promise that is fulfilled and demonstrated in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.